to the Lady Preacher Podcast, a podcast for the progressive Christian, where we talk about an all-loving God, an embodied Christ, and an ever-moving spirit. Dive right in as we wrestle with what it means to live out our faith in the world. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Lady Preacher podcast. I have a special guest today. I'm so excited to welcome on my husband, Kevin Beebe, Reverend Kevin Beebe. Uh, He has been such a huge supporter of this podcast, and I'm so excited that he has come on today. We are talking about our relationship. We touch on the Enneagram and on Sabbath, you know, what it is about each other that makes us choose each other. We talk about conflict. Um, People have often asked us about, you know, how to incorporate faith into their relationships. So we talk a little bit about how we do that. Anyway, I'm just so excited. Um, This was a great conversation. I'm excited to share it with you um, and answer some of the questions. I reached out on social media and said, ask us anything. And so um, all the questions that we answered today were ones that y'all submitted. Um, So I'm excited to to dive into this. And if it's something you like and you want us to answer more, maybe we'll do another one of these. Uh, Okay, so to tell you a little bit about Reverend Kevin Beebe, he is the pastor of Spirit Alive Church here in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And And he went to Pacific Lutheran Theological Seminary in Berkeley, California. He grew up in Pullman, Washington, go Cougs. (laughs) And uh, he spent a year living in Palestine and serving there. And I think that has really shaped a huge part of who he is, what his theology is, um, how he approaches various things. He has a huge heart for for social justice um, and looking for God's grace and God's mystery in the world. Something I really value about Kevin is how much he leans into the mystery. Uh, So anyway, I guess that's all I'll share. I'll let him introduce himself a little bit more. And y'all, thank you just so much for your constant support. I'm so excited for this series we're doing on relationships. Um, If you have things you want us to talk about, please go ahead and let us know. Reach out on social media, leave us a review, uh, contact me through my website. Uh, Let us know. Let us know what you want to hear. Okay, friends, I am excited to introduce you to the Reverend Kevin Beebe, my wonderful husband. Hi, Kev. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. It's wonderful to finally be here. I'm glad you're here. Um, so I've given my listeners a little bit about who you are on the surface level, but I'd love for you to tell us about yourself. What's your job? Um, what's the ministry you do? And then what is your love outside of that? What do you do beyond ministry? Well, I'm your spouse. Is there anything more that people need to know? <laughs> uh, I got a lot going on. I'm a pastor in the ELCA, um, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. I serve a small congregation in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, it's kind of a different church. We don't own a building. We're kind of small. We're open and affirming and really focusing on that identity and just trying to be a church that is based deeply in relationship. Um, originally from Washington State, grew up in a farming community, 
that also was a college town. So I got weird like parts of my life all mixed together that are like city life and, and farming life. And what do I do outside of work? I don't know if I do much outside of work because um, I work all the time, uh, which is probably <laughs> unhealthy, but I love to hike. I love sports of almost any kind watching them. I've gone in and out with a love of cooking. And uh, most recently I started brewing beer in our basement. Um, so our house often smells like malt and other weird things at any given moment. That is very true. That is very true. Okay. But you have a special gift um, for knowing all of the quarterbacks in the NFL and where they went to school. And do you know the backups too? Uh, not anymore. The <laughs> NFL season just started. I'm not even sure who the backups are. Um, I can probably still do most of the starting quarterbacks and where they went to college. I don't know. Something I'll have to work on, I guess. It's very impressive. Okay. So let's start with our story and how we met. Um, but I think we should tell them that there's a long version and then I don't know if there is a short ex version that exists, but um, I'd love to tell the short version. So what, how do you say that we met? Um, depends on who you ask. Was it the first day of seminary or was it online before the first day of seminary? That's right. Cause we had a hybrid class and I think you had put on the like mm -hmm. website who you were. And I commented on that. Yeah. Uh, Steve Davidson's old Testament class intro to old Testament. Uh, he had us post online before the first day where we were from stuff like that. And I posted that I was from Washington and, and you had commented like go Seahawks or something like that. And, um, I would argue that's the first day we met, but then we probably didn't officially meet until the first day of class, which happened to also be that same class. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just remember of you, your Chacos and you always had like t-shirts or flannel on. Um, and I was always impressed with how smart you were like, and that you did the work you, <laughs> you read it all at least from my perspective. No, I did not read it all. <laughs> if there's one thing I'd say about Steve Davidson is that he was always trying to weed people out and teach them that they can't read everything by assigning them to read the entire Bible. That's very accurate. Okay. So then we met in old Testament and you were super kind to me. I, I was going through a lot of various turmoil in that first year of graduate school. I had to move at super short notice and you showed up in your little was it Honda a Honda Civic? Honda Civic, Honda Civic hybrid. <laughs> and I think I made us peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then like a week later, I got really sick and had to go to urgent care. And you drove like half an hour to take me to urgent care. Well, I liked you. So, you know, people do crazy things when they like someone else. <laughs> and then did it work? No, no. <laughs> No, you want to date me until the end of our final year of classes in seminary, year three, um, last week. <laughs> yeah, the final week. We had gone out for a beer again because we did that quite a bit. And yeah. Okay, wait, we have to tell the two entree story and then we'll go to the next question. When we went, we went out for beers with Ben, who is getting married this week. Um, well, it'll be last week by the time this airs. But do you remember that? Yeah. I mean, it was just after the election, uh, the 2016 election. And as you can imagine, um, a lot of the progressive seminary movement was pretty upset with what had happened. And um, you reached out just wanting to to like get a beer or something and with some people. And I was too nervous to do it alone. So I, I pulled along with my wingman, Ben. And, um, <laughs> and we went to, I don't even remember the name of that place in Berkeley, but you had ordered 
like pancakes and they brought you a waffle instead. And you're like, I ordered the other thing. And the waiter was like, oh, well, let me fix that. And like, tried to take it away. You're like, no, 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 <laughs> I'll eat it. And so then they brought you the pancakes you had originally ordered and you ate both <laughs> like every last bite. And there Ben and I were like splitting an appetizer and you're going through two breakfast entrees at 10 PM. But, um, it's a special skill I have. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, a lot of people are really interested in Enneagram, um, and like how it shows up in relationships. So I thought we could talk about it within our own relationships. So can you give folks just like a brief, if they don't know what the Enneagram is, a brief explanation of it, and then we can talk about what our numbers are and then kind of how they show up in our relationship. The Enneagram, I'm no expert in it entirely, but it's another type of personality test. It's, it's a pretty old one, a thousand years old. I can't remember exactly, but it, it, takes a different look at humanity than maybe Myers-Briggs does or um, type A, type B personality kind of conversations. It talks about behavior, worldview, emotion processing, um, gut processing, um, mental and analytical processing, kind of all of those wrapped into one and motivations. So it kind of gives a different view of just INTJ or ENFP or some of those like Myers-Briggs numbers that a lot of people know. And it, it expands a lot to talk about uh, behavior, motivations. Um, yeah, just, just give a more holistic view. It talks about how you act when you're in moments of stress and anger, um, in moments where you're at your strongest and your weakest your ne negative or growing sides and, and some of your <laughs> positives. Okay. So I am an Enneagram two, which is often, um, nicknamed the helper. And it's kind of what, uh, women or female identified people are enculturated to be, you know, putting others needs before themselves. Um, but there's always, like you were saying, there's a shadow side to all of these. So there's underlying motivation there, but so I'm a two and you are, I'm a five, which is sometimes called the investigator. It's an analytical mind. Okay. So as a two, I'm an extrovert and as a five, you're an introvert. Mm -hmm. And I think that has played a lot into our relationship, figuring out like, <laughs> I was just telling someone today that, um, this person had told me about an 11 day silent retreat they had gone on. And I was like, I can't even imagine being silent for 11 days because when I get off a plane, if I've been flying by myself and the people around me don't talk, then I get into the car. <laughs> I wish you all could see Kevin's face right now. I get into the car and I go about a million miles an hour in what I'm saying. Wouldn't you say that's accurate? If there's a definition of purgatory that I would fall into, <laughs> it would be an endless car ride from the airport with Kelsey. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely an extrovert. But you're a weird extrovert too. Uh, one of the weird parts of our dynamics is that Kelsey is an extrovert, but she's like a homebody and I'm an introvert, but I like to go out in the world to coffee shops and hiking and, and be around other people. I just don't want to talk to them. Um, <laughs> so often we're, we're in the split dynamic. I'm like, let's go to a coffee shop and not talk. And Kelsey's like, let's stay home and talk here. Um, which is always a weird dynamic to work around that introvert extrovert um, mentality that we, we often have to struggle with. Yeah. I would also say it shows up in how we process. I'm very much an external processor. I want to talk through everything and I want to talk about it right now. 
Whereas your processing is more internal, right? Yeah. Uh, everything's internal for me. I, I keep everything inside until the very last moment. I'm a quick mind. So I process everything myself really easily. I, I go deep quick. Um, and especially when someone brings me another a topic that I am not initiating, um, I need a lot of time to think about it. I need time to like really get deep because I don't like to do the process with another person. I like to get to where I'm going to go by myself and then approach an issue. So like even this podcast, um, this wasn't just like a sit down affair. This was like months of Kelsey asking me to be on the podcast and me thinking about it because I had to know what the heck I was going to say. That's a good example. I think too, another example I would offer is like, um, when we started talking about buying a house, I was wanting to like, let's just dive in, let's talk about it. And I remember you being like, let's schedule a time in like two days and talk about it then. Cause you wanted to do the like research behind it. Whereas I'm much more emotion-based where I'm just like, I have this feeling that I want to buy a house. Feelings are dumb. No, uh, <laughs> no it's just, I, I, I normally choose uh, as a five, I normally choose, you know, reasoning and, and linear thinking over emotions and over an emotional center. Um, so I don't always understand those emotional thoughts. I, I have to have a linear thought out process to understand even where Kelsey's coming from when she says like, I have a feeling I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Yeah. And I would say learning about the Enneagram and each of our individual numbers has helped us in understanding the other person. Like I now have an understanding that if I want to have a really serious in-depth conversation, I can't just pounce that on you. Like it's helpful for you. If I give you like some lead time and say, Hey, can we sit down and talk about such and such in like two days? Um, whereas I think I don't know. I think you have similar awareness with me of like when my emotions are going haywire, I don't always have the language to it. Yeah, I, I've learned or and I'm still practicing um, the fact that I can say something and be ready to say the next thing. But you're going to need time to process the words and find what words you need um, to give you space in your in your emotions um, and, and to name them as valid. Right. It's it's tough for me because I I'm someone who when we sit down and, you know, if we're having an argument or something, I just need you to get your words out. So it's been a growing edge for me um, to kind of sit back and wait and say my argument and then wait and process and give you time to process because we just process differently. We think differently. I'm an ABC thinker. You're an AFZ prime one, negative six, 12,000 B kind of thinker. <laughs> Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just means we've had to work really hard on how we communicate and we're not always good at it. But I think using the Enneagram as a tool has really helped us to like, figure out the whys behind how each of us tick within, you know? So let's go from here. Um, someone asked about conflict. How do we handle conflict in our marriage? We don't, we never <laughs> fight. It's perfect. There are no problems. It's don't funky, listen. dory, dory, children <laughs> of the Lord every day. No, we have conflict. Conflict's real. People fight. If, if you were so close to someone and you had no arguments with that person, I think you should really examine your relationship um, because there should be tensions. When you're in deep relationship with another human being, there are things you will naturally disagree about. There's tension because two people will always want two things and you have to figure out how 
to make that move and shape and change um, so that both people can be happy and so that you can find common ground. Conflict's normal. And it, especially, you know, just going back to the Enneagram real quick, it's fives and twos. Even just the way we process things can sometimes cause conflict because um, we do it so differently. We come to any problem so differently when we try and track a solution. So um, conflict's natural. We, we have it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think something I valued from the very beginning of our relationship is I think our first argument was around, um, I made a comment, I think about the shirt you were wearing. Uh, and we had conflict around that. We had an argument and, um, you and I, it was clear that I was uncomfortable in conflict. I still am. I really struggle with conflict. Um, and I remember we sat down and you said, I think, didn't you tell me it's from mash the like, uh, when you love someone and it gets hard, you can either stop loving them or you can love them a whole lot more, but then it only gets harder. So you got two choices. You can stop loving them or love them a whole lot more, but then it only gets harder and on and on and on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Colonel Potter. Yeah. It's like, Mash has spoken way too much into my life, which is kind of problematic because that shows a lot of um, gender issues and many other issues, but it's still a favorite. Um, yeah. That's a choice we had to make. Yeah. And that was really helpful for me that, you know, when it gets hard, I have that choice to, to lean in and at least in a, um, you know, we have a safe relationship and a, I would say healthy relationship and that there's good conflict and we work through things. And with that, I can choose to lean in and love harder every time because it is going to get hard there. You know, we, are in our second year of marriage, or well, I guess now in our third, we just had our two year anniversary. So again, we're by no means experts, but I think, you know, having lived through a pandemic, we moved to a new state, started new jobs. I mean, there was a lot of turmoil. And if, if we didn't choose to love harder through all those conflicts, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think a big growing edge has been deciding too, that, um, that generally there is no, uh, winner and loser. Yeah, um, that that some things can have a right or a wrong when it's like fact based. Um, but for most of the arguments, it's it's finding the the way to continue navigating through and 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 beyond and with some of the tensions, because invariably they keep coming back um, or it'll be the same struggle where neither one of us can completely capitulate to another human being over anything like um how to uh, preach a sermon, how to load a dishwasher, uh, load a dishwasher how to um, how to care for our house and, and our property. And, and you have to find common ground and, and safe places to land and, and know that the tension may come back or it may not. Yeah. And I think remembering, too, for me, that usually the thing we're arguing about isn't necessarily the thing that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Like when I get angry about the way the dishwasher is loaded, it's usually not about the dishwasher. It's because I'm having a crummy day or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I think too, that, um, the, the knowledge that we're in it together is always really important to me. I remember this was a different argument. This was probably our first real major fight. And it was back when we lived in Missouri and, uh, we had just moved to Troy, Missouri, and we were painting a house in the middle of a Missouri summer, which is like, 4,000 degrees and 4 billion percent humidity. And we're melting in this house. And I just remember, I don't even remember what sparked it, but it was like the first like stomp out screaming, 
Kelsey going down in this particular way. She always sits on the ground um, in tears, me stomping away. But even in that moment, the knowledge was that we were going to come back together and we were going to find space to talk about that and not let it be something that over overshadowed everything. Um, I often also think about a, a, a Wendell Berry poem and I, I can't think of it off the top of my head completely, but it talks about like the, the, the end of an argument where you um, like the, someone's invariably going to comment on something and it's going to be the weather or you're trying to move beyond. So you're putting out these olive branches um, to continue a new conversation. And, and you always have a choice when that happens. And most of us notice when it's happening um, to accept the olive branch and decide to make peace or to soundly thrash the person with the olive branch, which is normally not the healthy choice. I think the Gottman Institute talks about that choice too, is that people will start offering the, each other olive branches. And we do that. We'll, we'll talk about the weather or we'll try and talk about the cat, or if we're coming off a tense moment, just to try and ease the tension and move back into relationship. And we have a choice. And sometimes we're really good at, at picking the, the thrashing the other person one and, and, and continuing to pick an argument. And most of the time we're better at at, at choosing peace. And, and that is a, I think an important part of a relationship is when, when you start extending olive branches to one another, that you take them, that you don't continue an argument, that you, you let things go. And that, like I said, there's no right or wrong sometimes, and you have to accept that um, because apparently that's right <laughs> wrong, <laughs> um, or wrong and, uh, and move forward. Yeah. I think Gottman calls them bids and you can uh, accept the bid or deny the bid, but I like the olive branch vision better. And I think in our relationship, for me, it's usually as a, so we could talk about love languages another time, but one of my love languages is physical touch. And so my bid is often like a hand on his shoulder or something like that. And I would say often your bids are jokes because you make me laugh a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that often helps break things, especially when I'm crying. (laughs) You're good at making a joke that doesn't make me feel like you're dismissing me, but it's like lightning mm-hmm. the moment. So um, we have a couple of questions about faith that came in. Um, what role does faith play in our relationship? And do we have any practical or tactical tips for people on how to make faith a part of a marriage? I would say the um, the way this shows up for us the most is pretty much from the beginning, prayer has been a really important part of our relationship. Um, I think, yeah, from the beginning, we started a routine of always ending the night by saying the Lord's prayer together. Cause that was something that I did on my own every night. And I remember asking you, do you say the Lord's prayer? And then we said the Lord's prayer together. And that's when I knew really that it like, I, I wanted to marry you. Yeah. Strange. That was, that was also a very deep moment for me. And, um, I told my mom about it actually, cause you know, um, the day after we did that, um, I was, we were ending seminary. And so we were trying to decide what to do in this potentially budding relationship. And we were, we were kind of choosing to like, uh, you know, let, let the fates decide kind of. And, um, uh, funny they did cause my car broke down the next day, but, uh, and but, you came back. and I came back, but before that I was telling my mom and I was like, uh, trying to tell my mom, this felt really different. And, and one of the things I mentioned is we had prayed together. I think prayer does crazy things to people. And, um, 
it was a, it's been a core center of our relationship and it's an easy, it's an easy start, right? The Lord's prayer is an easy start for most Christians. So you don't have to agree on theology necessarily. You don't have to even, well, <laughs> there's multiple versions of the Lord's prayer. We end up praying between two different versions half the time um, because I grew up with one and Kelsey grew up with another, but um, it's, it was an easy place to start to make faith intentionally part of our relationship, to constantly bring God into, into the conversation um, and into our nights, especially when we're headed to bed. Yeah. And I, I think even the nights where we've been frustrated with each other, it's been at least a, one of those olive branches, right? That, that we can be frustrated with one another, but we can at least pray together. Um, and that always makes me feel grounded and connected to you. Um, I'd say another thing, uh, we don't always like pray before a meal, but, um, when we, when we sit down at the table, we do, <laughs> uh, but I would say it comes through also in the ways we make decisions, right? Like when we were, um, making the decision of moving up to Kenosha, um, things like that, buying a house, I think prayer was part of it. Faith was part of it. Um, it shows up in the choices we make and what we purchase, um, like environmental decisions we make, that's all based, I would say, in in our faith. I think, too, it's it's a weird and I don't even know how to completely express this theology. It's it's hard to dive into it. But um, the fact that, you know, before our relationship, we're children of God, which is um, is a tough concept, right, is that that we have um, committed ourselves to follow Christ wherever Christ leads. And our relationship definitely enhances that. But there's also the acknowledgement that um, um, that that way of being a Christian um, doesn't necessarily supersede, but but has some deeper, deeper ties to us. And that that adds a different grounding, right? And a different seriousness that everything we do, if it's connected back to our baptisms, that includes this relationship. And our relationship itself is about how we proclaim the gospel and live it out in the world. Even just saying, I love you is an example of living out gospel love with one another and, and, um, and, and sharing that with the world and changing the world um, together. Yeah. And I, I would say to bounce off of that, you know, it shows up in the ways that we express love to one another. You gave the example of just saying, I love you. Um, but I also see it just in the various acts that we do. Um, and we both show love differently. And so I think it comes through in different ways and also in just like honoring who one another is. I remember, um, you know, last year when Jacob Blake was shot and, as soon as the video came onto our social media pages, it was immediate for you that you were like, I'm going to put on a stole and I'm going to go and be a presence. And, um, because of who I am, I needed to, to, to not be in that. I knew I would not be a peaceful presence in that moment because I felt my own anxiety and things like that, but it was honoring, this is your call. And this is where God calls me to be was to be in prayer, um, in my own space and you be in prayer and in the center of it. I think that's actually, you started to highlight one of the hardest parts about this. And, and this is part of being a, a, you know, two people whose profession is, is a call and discernment with God and with communities is how do we honor that call that God has distinctly given each of us? And also honor the call of our partner. Um, 
we came to Kenosha following my call originally, uh, partially that's due to denominational policy and, and how the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America works differently than the United Church of Christ, and um, especially in this first call. But that's a lot of give and take and a lot of trust. You know, we came here not knowing if if you would find a job. Yeah. Um, but we knew it was important for me to find one and that um, and given some of the turmoil in my process, trying to get ordained and, and, and be placed somewhere in the nation, we knew we couldn't pass up many opportunities. We knew saying no would be a struggle with the, the fallibility and brokenness that and human institution that is the church. Sometimes we knew that um, there would not be enough grace and forgiveness if we said no um, too many times. So um, it was really important to follow my call. And, and we just had to trust that something would be here for you um, and hope that God came through and Yay! Yeah. <laughs> um, it did. but, um, but that's a big, that's a big difficult in our relationship. It's, it's also honoring God's call for us as pastors, as ministers, as proclaimers of the word. And that can put us in uncomfortable spots. Um, and we haven't even reached half of them. I'm sure there will come a day soon where one of us will be ready to leave a call and, and potentially move and, uh, or, um, just change, change roles and ministry. And, and the other one will have to wrestle with God and, and say, is, is there space for me and how we process this? And, um, it's, it's not as simple as just, you know, quitting a job because this isn't a job for us. This is a call from God, um, which I know many jobs are for many people, but it's really tough when you're a pastor. It's really tough to think about that because your relationship isn't just you. It's every person who's a member of your congregation sometimes. Yeah. Well, and I think the, you know, the tactical or practical tips for people piece of this is that discernment, listening for where God is calling you in your life, whether that's to a new career or to a new home or whatever that might be. And knowing that, like, if your partner feels that call, um, you know, there's a, there's a level of sacrifice you might want to make or need to make. Um, and oftentimes there's a give and a take. I think there has been a lot in our relationship where one of us has chosen to, to listen to where God is calling the other person and say like, okay, we're going to jump and hopefully, (laughs) hopefully we'll fly. Um, and yeah, it's really important to name too, that there's, um, to acknowledge that the the patriarchy of our world also plays a big role in this. And, and I think our faith brings us, um, as equals to conversations like this, um, patriarchy often says, you know, the man kind of makes the decision in a, a traditional heterosexual relationship. And, um, and it's like, you know, you might think, oh, we, we follow Kevin where his calls go. Um, and Kelsey just has to find calls, um, wherever Kevin does. And that has not been the case for us, but, um, some people do live in relationships like that. And, and I think it's important that our faith grounds us that it's a mutual conversation, um, that we both have calls that we both have to honor them. And, and that sometimes will mean deep sacrifice from both of us. Um, and in all cases will mean sacrifice from both of us because it will never, there's never puppies and rainbows, right? There's never the perfect thing for both people. It's living in that tension of the, the humanness and brokenness of our world and, and finding how God is calling us to both move in that, even when we can't see what it looks like. Yeah. And I appreciate you naming the patriarchy thing, because I think that dynamic has been a conversation with us about, we really feel like we come to this relationship as equals and you know, the, the different processing has played a a role in that, that we process things differently, but you know, the, the decisions we make are 
are equal. And that's a faith thing for us that we see one another as on an equal playing field. I know some Christian circles will talk about, um, particularly in heterosexual relationships, um, same gender that, you know, that the man is the right hand or the dominant hand and the woman is the non-dominant hand, like same equal, but different. Is that the, I can't remember. Equal, but different. And what they really mean is equal and subservient. Right. Uh, most people who use that language really mean subservient. Uh, they say the man is still the head and, you know, the right hand is still the dominant hand. Uh, it's it's toxic language and it's language that we should try and avoid in our relationships. We're, we are equals. We're not one side and the other. We are equals and we have equal rights and equal say and equal ways of hearing and speaking of God, even if the way we speak um, is different in how we process. Uh, uh, some practical, a practical tip I just thought of, uh, or maybe this is tactical, is um, with faith, try something. And if it sticks, it sticks. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And that's okay. So often we make faith the solemn thing that we have to do. And so you try and sit down and read the Bible every night. We tried that for a while, reading the Bible together every night. Nope. I didn't want to go to bed when I get in bed and Kelsey doesn't. And so we just decided we're doing our own things at that point. We still pray together because we found that one stuck, you know, find moments to discern where the holy is and, and try it and, you know, talk about where you've seen God or where you felt an absence of God. And if that works for you, do it. And if it doesn't, don't, don't ever feel like faith is some like thing you have to do all this all the time. There's no such thing as the perfect way to bring faith into your marriage um, or into your relationship. It's, it is a, it is a trial and error and try new things kind of relationship. Yeah. I think I, I like to use the phrase um, that I borrow from a yoga teacher of mine who used this in terms of yoga, but I say it's a reason we call it a faith practice, not a faith perfect. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think other ways, um, uh, it, to make faith more part of your, of your relationship is we kind of talked about it already, but it's to change the lens where you start from. And that is to start with conversations around faith, that every decision you are making together is a discernment question around faith. Uh, even little things like buying toilet paper. We buy our particular brand. Can I say their name on your yeah, podcast? Yeah. We buy who gives a crap. Um, they're not sponsoring us by the way, but, um, but if uh, you're listening, but if they're listening, it's wonderful <laughs> toilet paper, it's soft. It's, uh, I don't know what other words sustainable. to use. Sustainable. It's recycled. It's, it's got funny jokes on the wrappers, you know, everything you need in a toilet paper company. We make those choices because Faith is such a core of everything we do. Um, faith has to be part of even the mundane questions. And it takes practice and it's little by little. It won't be everything. And it is okay, especially if you're in a relationship where somebody um, might be a believer and someone might not be a believer in, um, in God or Christ, um, especially in the same ways, to acknowledge that difference is not bad. Right. Um, to acknowledge that you don't have to have the same faith and uh, and sometimes you might not be able to bring it in in the same language um and that might be finding some common ground language while also maintaining your own yeah i i appreciate you bring language into this because i think you know we use the language of faith but someone else might use the language of values right like the reason we buy that toilet paper is because of our values which for us we root in faith but for other people it might be rooted in something else but i think it's that realizing that all of all those things are guided by, um, by our values or by our faith. And 
sometimes it's just adding that that layer of language to it. And I think for me, one of the biggest things that that is a practical thing for faith and uh, faith in a in our relationship is the idea of death and resurrection. Um, as Christians, we we follow that. We talk about death and dying, and we talk about um, how there are parts of our relationships um, that will die and things will resurrect. We confess when we break down and we forgive one another because that is the dying and the rising of our Lord Jesus Christ in our own relationship. Um, and that's a really important concept that we are grounded in confession and forgiveness in watching things die and naming them, but also the hope of resurrection when things break down and when things, um, things go wrong. That's a big part of it's of my faith in our relationship. And I think that's an, uh, an easy way to bring it into other relationships too, is, is to talk about that when we are forgiving one another, that is, that is living scripture out. That is living Christ's words. That's living, living our faith out by confessing when we do things wrong and asking for forgiveness from one another and then granting it and grant uh, and naming, naming that um, there is new life and there's resurrection and there is forgiveness. Okay. So, uh, Kelly wants to know in the realm of faith, um, as do many others, I get this question a lot. Um, how do we manage being a part of two different denominations? So I'm part of the United church of Christ and you are part of the evangelical Lutheran church in America. I think for me, um, they're similar enough that, that we don't really, we have theological differences, but you have that within denominations too. We're both Christian. Um, we're both progressive. We're both Protestant. Um, there really hasn't been much conflict around that. I think the conflict arises in, in probably, again, the different ways we process things and think about things and the way we understand scripture sometimes or talk about it. But I think that is more enriching than it is conflict creating. Yeah. I don't know if it, I, I don't know if I would use the word conflict. I think there are differences that we constantly wrestle with, um, uh, communion theology, um, the real presence of Christ, even how to give people communion, though pandemic has changed some of that, that, uh, in the short term, um, like, uh, it, for me, it's a very, very important core part of theology that, um, someone hand me the bread and say the body of Christ broken for you and put it in my hands. That it's not something I can just take versus most of the UCC churches I've been to with you. People pass the plate, uh, uh of the bread and you kind of just take it yourself. Yeah, um, and, and, uh, so real presence, uh, presence of Christ and how that happens in communion. Um, I think, uh, it shows up in, um, in our preaching is it's we don't, we don't like to talk about sermons together um, because we have very different ways we approach sermon. There's a good point of conflict. Um, um, and it's pretty hard to describe sometimes, but I, I think that we come from different places in our understanding of God's grace and how God moves in our sermons. You know, I, I, I normally drive uh, Kelsey crazy with the question and she does it back to me sometimes like what's God doing? Um, because you know, in my Lutheran understanding, God's action always spurs our action. And, and so that's something that's very core to my preaching that shows up very distinctly. And Kelsey has that, but it's often less distinct, at least to my eyes, because I look at it from a law and gospel conversation, which is not UCC language. That's Lutheran language. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, you know, there's also the difference of the UCC doesn't, um, use creeds. And the Lutheran church does. And so that's like a like real tactical thing, but yeah, I, hopefully that answers um, the question. I think there's other, other weird things of how do we manage it? Um, we don't talk about it a lot or when we, it's not a, it's not a point of contention in our relationship. No. Um, it 
also, I think, enriches some of the conversation. Um, something I've heard from uh, some colleagues who are in a, a clergy couple who are both ELCA pastors. Uh, this was back in seminary. They mentioned that at one point they even were working in the same church. And that was a struggle because all they did was talk work when they were together and they went home and talked work at home. Um uh, it was just constant work because there was no differences and differences actually enrich things and ask deeper things of the mystery. And the thing I like to hold on to as well is uh, how do we manage being part of two different denominations uh, is uh, when, especially when it comes to theology, is that uh, God is always deeper and wider than we can ever express in words. It's the mystery of who God is. And, and that's something that both our denominations are struggling to understand. We're wrestling with who God is. And so there's things we can learn from one another and things that will cause tension. And that's okay. Now, I think it's a different question to ask um, uh, what, not what it's like to be part of two denomin different denominations, but to, to both be pastors and working, um, uh, working the same uh, the same kind of career field at the same time, um, because that's where things really get hard because our schedules both look like pastor schedules. We sometimes have a lot of night meetings. We eat dinner at 9 p.m. Um, some weeks and and we're constantly trying to figure out who is moving when and where and and. Um, and, and trying to make sure someone can ho be home and feed the cat. And, and we don't have any like children, which would make this a, a thousand times harder. Um, and, and that's overwork and uh, some issues on our, on our side as well. But um, that's been more difficult, I think, is that neither one of us is working an eight to five job. Absolutely. Well, and that was the next question was my friend Heidi wanted to, she said, I'd love to hear you all talk about the joys and challenges of being a two clergy couple. And in the spirit of the podcast, how you pay attention to the ways patriarchy may influence that. And I think for us, a part of it is I'm three quarters time at my job and you are full time. Sometimes my three quarters time looks like full time. <laughs> and sometimes my full time looks like I'm working two jobs. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like you said, that's part of our own struggle with overworking. But I think that, you know, um, the joy is we get it. Like I get when he is out with a congregant and it goes long. I know what that's like because we both do it. Um, I get when... Uh, you know, you've got to do a 3 a.m. run to the hospital. One of us, you know, has done that. And so we we understand the push and pull um, con confidentiality issues. You know, I can't just say like, oh, who was that on the phone? Because sometimes you can't share that information. Um, so that's definitely a challenge. Um, I think the patriarchy influences it. I don't know. I, I don't know that I see it in too many ways. I think a lot of it comes through in my Enneagram two-ness that I, I don't know, I, I pay attention usually to other people's needs more than my own, which can sometimes mean I lean way hard into my work or sometimes means I, I find myself giving a lot to the relationship and then feeling resentment. But I, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think patriarchy plays into our to, particular? To being a clergy couple? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Left and right. Um, you know, uh, here's a great example. Uh, I am not talk. People don't talk to me about what I wear to church. Mm. Right. And you get that. You have to think about that. It's, and it's, it's a reminder to myself when I get to, we're trying to get out the door on Sunday morning at seven, you know, 40 in the morning. So we can both get to our churches. Uh, Cause we have a one car driveway. Um, we'll never have that one again. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> um, uh, is, 
is that like, I'm trying to like, I'm like, let's go, but you actually have to invest some. And you could argue whether you do or you do not, but you, you're going to get comments on what you wear to work. And I won't. And uh, other things like if, if we were to uh, go on and, and, and try to have children or adopt children, there would be cultural expectations here. People would expect you to step away from work and me to stay in work. And, um, it, you know, I've never once been asked the question about what happens when you have kids, because people just assume that I'll keep working. And I mean, I will, but, um, and, but so will you. Yeah. Um, you're not going to stop everything to be home at five to cook dinner. Um, uh, not that we already can manage that one, but, um, <laughs> and you often cook dinner and I often cook dinner cause I like cooking. Um, but that's a great example is, is that often with the patriarchy, of the couple comes from outside influences and, and us trying to, to, to mitigate that because, um, because there are cultural expectations for a male pastor and the cultural expectations for a female pastor are so drastically different. And many of them are still tied up in traditional female gender roles. Um, I think that's a challenge of being a clergy couple. I, I think um, uh, the questions Kelsey gets asked about being a pastor, um, because I am also a pastor, I know are just BS sometimes. Um, questions that should never be asked or way she's treated, um, you know, being called sweetheart in a church. Nobody calls me sweetheart in a church. My first name might as well be pastor most days. Um, no one's ever going to laughingly call me padre because they think it's funny to call me a masculine name. Um, no one's ever going to call me madre either, but that's because um, that isn't used as a term for pastors and and um and that's something to really like point out and it infuriates me and and maybe part of my patriarchy is learning that i can confront it at some level but i also can't just like ride in on a horse and start slapping people um because that's that's just patriarchy over functioning and saying now the men are going to fight the men over what men can say and and while men definitely have a role in, in calling each other out and calling each other into conversation um we cannot be the knights in shining armor on this kind of stuff all the time um that we have to um have to let you know kelsey has to stand and 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 in her own feet without me just as she's trying to do it pushing her over so i can do it for her yeah i i appreciate you saying that and i you know, there are so many examples. I've been doing a lot of hospital visits lately and I've, it's every time I go to the hospital, um, without fail, someone makes a comment about me being a pastor. Cause I usually wear my collar, my clerical collar. And I often hear, Oh, they allow that. Um, <laughs> or conversations on the airplane. I get that comment a lot. So yeah, I've, I've always been grateful that you have, um, you have never hesitated to lean in when you need to lean in, but you also um, lean out when I'm there and can hold, you trust me to hold my own. And I appreciate that. A great challenge that we haven't talked about yet. Um, and this is one that I think about every day is um, uh, we don't get to worship together almost ever. Um, we don't get to be involved in the lives of each other's churches, which we wish we could. At least I wish I could. Um, there's people at yeah. Kelsey's congregation um, that I've met and I really enjoy, but I don't have have the space to be with them um, because, you know, people forget that as clergy, um, even when we're with you and it seems like it's like, a, a you know, get just getting dinner. We also still are, are your pastor and you're still the pastor's spouse, which makes us ha we are still in a role even in moments that are a little bit more um, relaxed, relaxed, you know, as, as 
as the pastor spouse, as much as sometimes I want to reject it, I do represent Kelsey and Kelsey represents me. There's certain things we can do and certain things we can't do when around each other's congregants. So that's just a reality where we're kind of constantly at work when we're around other people um, who happen to be related to our communities. Holidays are hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you kind of want to be with family on Christmas and, and uh, our first year here in Kenosha, we tried to hit all of our Christmas services and we did uh, mine first because mine was first. Then we drove to Kelsey's first one and Kelsey's second one. And by the end of that second one, we were both just done. Or d- done. Yeah, we yeah. were done. We we're like, and, we're never doing that again. <laughs> uh, we were so exhausted because it, even for me, it wasn't just sitting in a pew. I was still sitting in a pew as Pastor Kelsey's spouse. And, um, and that's, and uh, that's tough. That is a tough part about being a clergy couple. You are always playing a role. Yeah. Well, and like you said, I, I would love to worship together, but that's not always a, a reality for us. Um, I want to talk about Sabbath because this feels like it's kind of in that same vein. Um, Andy asked, how do you practice Sabbath together? <laughs> you know, one of the ways we practice Sabbath together is by practicing Sabbath apart. Um, hmm. uh, we've learned um, in those two years of our marriage that especially for me to recharge my batteries, I need time alone. In fact, um, there's some, we're rearranging our schedules right now for me to get a Sabbath day off by myself, a day Kelsey will continue to work and a day that I'll have off. Um, just because I know that I need some of that space. I need space to be myself, to go to a coffee shop, to sit by myself, to read a book, to go for a hike or a walk, um, to recharge in some quiet. And, um, so, so sometimes we have to learn to practice Sabbath together. The first step is by learning to practice it apart. And that's a growing edge for us all the time, but how do we practice it together? Uh, we find different ways to get ourselves moving and out of the house. Sometimes we approach Sabbath as the end. So we are falling into it instead of coming out of it. And so what I mean by that is like, we get to the end of the week and we take our Sabbath and it's just about getting enough rest from the previous weeks that we can go into the next uh, work rather than finding shalom and wholeness and letting that wholeness be the guide to everything we do in the days to come. Um, so sometimes that Sabbath looks like sitting on the couch and doing nothing. Uh, recently, we've been trying to find ways to get us moving, though, and out of the house. The pandemic was tough um, on that in some ways because we were we were trapped together a lot. And that's why we bought a house. Part, part of why we buy a, bought a house is so that we could be separate but in the same place. Uh, one thing we recently did uh, to practice Sabbath is I love coffee and Kelsey loves donuts. And so we would drive to coffee shops and donut places and buy donuts and drink coffee. Um, but that would get us moving. It would get us to explore. It would get us to do different things that we both like. I love exploring and going out in place, places. Kelsey loves donuts and um, donuts. Uh, and water. Oh, and we water. usually find some kind of lake or um, a beach somewhere. And, Cause that brings me peace. And yeah, I, I appreciate what you say about doing things separately sometimes. And cause for a while we tried taking our Fridays and our Saturdays off together. Cause I want Friday and Saturday as my off day. And so now we're switching that and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. So maybe we'll have to, I'll do a follow-up <laughs> at some point, say, say how it's going. Cause it's, I think it's hard too. When, when you don't get your work done Sunday to Thursday, and then you're, you know, you take up your off day with your work that you didn't get done, which can be can be hard. So, um, why don't we talk about this last question, choosing each other? Um, 
Oh, and there was another one. Well, what kept your marriage strong through the pandemic? I think Joni asked that question. And I would say choosing each other and giving each other space. It's all the things we've talked about. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the strengths we learned in the pandemic was uh, that buying a house, though, seemed kind of crazy. Um, we still live in a two bedroom apartment and we just were around each other too much. We had to learn to be independent and move separately of one another. So having having a house where we could be in separate rooms and know that we're still around, but um, do our own things was really important um, for our relationship. Um, being moving uh, physically was important for our relationship, getting out, going for a drive, going for a walk, remembering that relationship isn't just a heart and a head thing. It's a body thing. And sometimes you have to literally exercise your relationship uh, in a physical sense by, by going out and walking and, and, and moving and, and um, getting out of just your normal like space and routines. Um, that was really important, I think, to our marriage and, and just trusting that in the frustration um, when things broke down or when one of us got overwhelmed, certainly there are moments we both were overwhelmed by many different things during this pandemic. Um, just trusting that the other person was there yeah. and holding space. We made a choice, not because we were mad at each other, but um, there was one particular night that Kev slept in the guest bedroom when we were still in our apartment. And actually, the next morning we both woke up and we're like, that was great. Like <laughs> having a little bit of space. And I love that you brought in the walking piece because I learned this in therapy um, with my therapist back in Missouri about um, how there's something about the right and left motion of walking that can actually help your brain process. And so if you're finding yourself stuck, which often we did during the pandemic, going for a walk actually helps your brain process in a healthy way. Um, so I think that's part of what, what helped us too. Okay. So last question before we move into our rapid fire, which is, um, from Sydney and she would like to know what is it about each other that makes you continue to choose the other? How has being in a relationship with the other helped you grow? I would say, um, it's our differences. Um, I really love that Kevin is very different from me. Um, we have these kind of silly nicknames, I'm ocean and he is mountain and they kind of describe our personalities. He's super steady and grounded and, um, tall <laughs> and just a, a really strong, steady presence. And that can be really helpful for me as kind of an emotions person, a heart centered person. Um, sometimes that means like like the ocean, you know, the waves are churning and moving and that can be a really grounding thing for me to be around someone who is, um, so steady. So I think that's a huge part of it. And I just like you a lot. Yeah. I think a uh, difference is one reason. Um, <laughs> I like a challenge. No, uh, um, <laughs> uh, I think that difference is interesting and it, it allows things to continue to be fresh and, and that we don't, have the same patterns and, and ways of thinking and being in the world, which, which allows us to continue to learn about one another. I think it's, uh, it's, it's forgiveness. I think Kelsey is, uh, a very forgiving of someone who, uh, is often a very broken uh, person, AKA me and, um, and, and makes space uh, to hear my apology. And, and she calls me out when I'm, when I'm struggling and not doing, doing well in, in relationship or, um, um, have, have harmed in some way. And so that's really important to me as well, that I, I can trust her to both um, call me out and to call me into relationship and, and be together. I think uh, another reason I choose, um, choose you, um, 
uh, every day is, is the fact that you make me laugh and there's humor in our relationship. Um, and that, um, and the willingness to struggle together, um, the willingness to wrestle with the hard stuff, to not walk away from it. That's really important to me. You don't find that in everyone. Um, I, I still remember, um, like going back to that first major fight we had, I walked out of the room and I knew that it was not the end. It was a big fight. It was a blow up, right? It was, it was, you know, everyone's probably had one of those in a relationship. And if you haven't, it's coming. Um, and, um, <laughs> yeah, I screamed at you, you screamed at me, you fell down crying. I stomped out of the room and, and, uh, and we came back together. And I think that's, that's really important is that we just knew that, um, no matter what we were going to choose each other in that moment and not walk away. Um, I think it's really helped me be more emotionally centered and, and slow down. Um, I, I think it's helped me to change my patterns and think of how I process things. It's, um, which is really important both for my work and just as, an, as a human being, um, to remember that other people are not like me. It, it's definitely challenged me to be a better pastor, uh, professionally with two pastors, you, you know, the theology and things that we throw around and the conversations we can have. I think it, it, it's made me, um, a more rounded person when it even comes to reflecting on my own emotion. I, I won't say I'm an expert at that, but I, uh, I get better at aiming like, I'm angry or I'm like upset right now, or I'm sad or um, don't ask me to go deeper than that. And I'm still working on that part, but um, I definitely think our relationship has helped with that. Yeah. I would say too, that, you know, I came into this marriage as all of us come into our lives with stories that we tell ourselves. And I would say that, you know, Kevin has really helped me work through some of those stories and realize that they weren't truth like capital T truth. You know, I told myself forever, I was bad with money and he <laughs> helped me realize that, you know, that, that wasn't necessarily true. That was really a story I was telling myself and he's supportive of me seeking outside help too. I have seen many therapists and life. I have a life coach I meet with regularly and he's really supportive of that, of the fact that I'm a verbal processor and oftentimes need to, to verbally process with another human. And, um, as a, you're a very private person, Kev. And so I've been grateful for, um, the space to be able to, to do that. And, um, yeah, I think he's helped me find, um, a worth in myself that I didn't always see, um, which was really healthy and, and really good. And I would say too the, that you call me in and call me out as well. And I value that, that we don't just, let each other off the hook that we really talk about it, um, and come together. And like, we trust each other enough to be able to have those hard conversations. And <laughs> sometimes can I tell a story about the, uh, um, what was it? I was cabinets that I thought it was going to be a really big deal <laughs> to talk to you about closing cabinets. And you were like, Kelsey, that really wasn't a big deal. But for me to like speak up and say something, um, was, it's not always easy and you've always held space and grace for me in that. So I think another important thing in growth, and this is kind of a sideways one, but, um, that I've learned in our two years of relationship, uh, of marriage, but also our relationship before that. And it's a good reminder to everyone that, um, that not all growth can come from your partner Yeah, is that, um, there are parts, there are things that I need, uh, in terms of conversation or, um, or, uh, processing mm -hmm. that cannot come from my spouse. My spouse cannot be 
everything at all times. And that's good to name. And that's a great growing point for relationships. You know, sometimes I have to call on other friends. Um, sometimes I think Kelsey listens to her friend, Brittany, more than she listens to me. Uh, when we're, <laughs> she has advice and she's going to take Brittany's advice over mine every single time. We love you, Brittany. Uh, we love you, Brittany. But, uh, um, and I say that jokingly, um, but I also do understand that there are times where Kelsey needs to get on the phone and talk to Brittany um, because I simply cannot walk certain rows with Kelsey because it's just not the way I'm wired some days. And, the, and, and though I'm trying and, and trying to get better, I know that Brittany is better than I am already at some of those things. So you just have to kind of accept that and know that some of the growth is also, um, is learning that we cannot rely on each other for everything and that we can trust that, uh, trust each other to do the growing we need to with others. Yeah. I appreciate that. Okay. Kev, are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Mm-hmm. Okay. If you could untangle one piece of bad theology for everyone forever, what would it be? I think I would unravel that like God and scripture are these monolith, never changing, ever perfect things, right? That I think so much of our theology and everything is tied to the fact that like, we're so afraid to explore and dive in and and wrestle with God and and fight back and, and, you know, um, and and ask deep questions of the divine and and even of our holy works to continue to explore. And somewhere along the lines, we, we made some of that really like solidified and, and like stone. And it, it's a real struggle. It's a real struggle when the Bible becomes infallible. It, it teaches us some really awful things. So I think I would, um, yeah, I would untangle that, that God and scripture are not some monolith, but are actually deep wells of mystery that we can continue to explore and go deeper and deeper and deeper in. What do you love about Jesus? I think what I love about Jesus is that Jesus is an enigma to me. And, um, <laughs> and I am uh, someone who loves to learn and Jesus is mystery. And I think that's a really hard thing for me to accept sometimes and a really freeing thing. Jesus is all of everything I can ever want. Uh, a savior, a, a confronter, a whip maker, a table turner, a peace and justice advocate, uh, a, a food giver. Um, I think I love all of those things about Jesus. And I think I love it because it becomes a mystery that I can constantly explore and a mystery that I will never understand. What is your favorite verse or story in the Bible? Uh, probably the Magnificat um, from the Gospel of Luke, Mary's song. I, um, the song of justice that she sings is, is a prophetic call of something that she does not experience or know, but believes can happen. And um, man, if every Christian lived a song in a life like that, if every person on earth could be that bold, um, she's, she's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. And I think that song is my favorite passage in the scripture. Okay. This, um, what is a book that changed your life? And this can be any book. It doesn't have to be like a serious theology book unless it is, but <laughs> what is a, a book that changed your life? I don't know. I can, I can think of a couple. The first is the giver. Um, I remember, um, Gary Johnson, my fifth grade teacher reading us the giver. Uh, it was one of the things he did on Fridays. He read to us. And that was the first time I was ever exposed to that book. Um, 
And it just like, it made me start asking questions around like memory and, and thought and society and how we shape ourselves and how we fear things and how we push away fears. You know, that's a lot for a fifth grader. I still read that book almost every year. Um, and the other one I think is uh, Fahrenheit 451, um, which is a book everyone should read. Um, I love dystopians just in general, but I think that's a really another book of what happens when we become afraid of knowledge, when we become afraid of learning and exploring and difference and trying to move all into sameness and move into oneness. And those books are telling and chilling, but also potential hope giving reasons of why we should avoid things like that. What is something that people often get wrong about you? Um, <laughs> you know, this is a weird one. Uh, something people get wrong about me is they often comment that I'm really skinny and like, I don't eat and I actually eat a lot. Um, uh, and this is just, this is just a metabolism and it's, you know, it's actually kind of hurtful sometimes the way people approach that. Um, I don't like to be called skinny or like a, a tall drink of water or things like that. I'm just who I am. And this is the body. I, I don't really, I don't work out. I, I don't have an eating disorder. Um, and that's not to make light of eating disorders. They're real and, and they're extreme, but I don't have one. And, um, I, I just like, I'm, it's, I'm just skinny. It's okay. Everyone it's okay to be skinny. Uh, it's just my metabolism. Okay. Uh, two more questions. First, what do you know for sure? That the Sounders, Seattle Sounders are the best soccer team in the MLS. <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, uh, the thing I know for sure is, is that God is. And I can't say anything more than that. I think, you know, in fact, most things about faith comes back to just God exists. And um, I don't know more and I can't really define it. And my entire life will be trying to understand that and, and to shape it. Um, but um, to fall back on the mystery is that God is. Okay. Final question. What is filling your well right now? Two things are filling my well right now. I, I think my cat Velcro, uh, I just love her to death and it's kind of weird. I, I want to have called myself a cat person. I mean, we always had cats growing up, but uh, like, I just can't do anything with my, out my cat. She's been locked in the bedroom as we've been recording this. And um, that's tough for me. Um, I also think, uh, especially recently, I've reclaimed some love for just reading. I, I like to read um, the news and everything, but I've, I've started picking up books again and I'm reading, uh, I'm reading, I love to read and learn. So I, I read random books about random things. So I'm learning about um, copper mining on the Keweenaw Peninsula in the upper peninsula of Michigan. And right now I'm reading about the strikes in 1913 to 1914. And it's just exhilarating for me because I'm, I'm learning something that has nothing to do with what I do professionally. Um, but it's just fun to learn. And you get to tell me fun facts. I get to tell you fun facts about mining. Yes. <laughs> that I listen to, but don't retain. <laughs> well, Kev, thank you so much for coming on and being a part of this podcast and for your constant and unwavering support of this work. And I know people will find meaning in it. If you want to uh, let us know what you think, go ahead and leave us a review, especially if you liked it. Um, if you didn't like it, don't worry about it. <laughs> don't leave a review. Um, but let us know what you think. Um, always be sure to reach out on social media. I love to hear from y'all. All right. Thanks, Kev. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. My friend, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so grateful for you. Without you, this ministry would not be possible. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. The Lady Preacher podcast is part of a nonprofit called Dancing Pastor Ministries. And you can find us online at dancingpastor.org or join the community by finding us on Facebook at Dancing Pastor Ministries. 
If you would like to be a part of supporting this podcast, there are many ways you can do that without giving monetarily. You can share our posts on social media, send an episode to a friend, or just leave a review. If you would like to support us financially, you can do so at dancingpastor.org slash give. My friend, you are a gift. Thank you for being here and God bless.